0: Hi everyone, it's Dina McKay, and I'm back with a brand new episode of Black Tech Unplugged, podcast that allows Blacks in tech to share their authentic stories with you, the listener. On each episode, the guest talks about how they got into tech, their work in the industry, and lessons they've learned during their journey. You can find full show notes for this episode on blacktechunplugged.com. On this episode, my guest is Joe Miller. Joe is the founder, president, chief executive officer, and founding board chair of, of the Washington Center for Technology Policy Inclusion, also known as Washington Tech. It's the nation's first organization focused exclusively on diversity and inclusion and technology public policymaking. As a nonpartisan nonprofit educational charity, Washington Tech's mission is to defend America's democracy and diversity by fostering an inclusive narrative about technology's impact on society. On this episode, Joe and I talk about Joe's unique career path into tech. We also talk about how you can get involved in tech policy. We also talk about algorithmic bias and how that's been a problem for a while. And most importantly, we talk about spreading misinformation, which comes at a great time because if you're not aware, a couple weeks ago, there was a meme that was being spread about the purge law in Chicago. So Joe talks about how we can make sure that information is accurate and coming from a great source. So all of that's going to be covered in the podcast today. Before I jump into my conversation with Joe... I wanted to let you all know that this episode of the podcast is sponsored. And this episode is sponsored by Black Professionals in Tech Network, BPTN. And BPTN connects black tech professionals and creates a community that is focused on growth. BPTN has a summit in Toronto, Canada, Be Future, on October 19th through the 21st. The summit features 100 plus speakers and it has 60 plus corporate partners. This is a campus event. So go ahead, grab your ticket to Be Future right now at That's obsidi.com. That's O B S I D I.com. I already have my ticket. And I would love to see some of my followers and listeners and 28,000 plus other techies on October 19th through the 21st in Toronto or virtually. So don't forget to grab your ticket. Link in the bio for how to access the agenda and the tickets. And again, that's obsidy.com. All right, I've done enough talking. So let's jump into this brand new episode. Let's get it. everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of Black Tech Unplugged. I am joined by Joe Miller. And Joe, for my listeners who might not be familiar with you, I want to take a moment and have you introduce yourself.
1: Sure. My name is Joe Miller. I'm the founder and CEO of an organization called the Washington Center for Technology Policy Inclusion, Washington Tech. And our mission is to fight for safe and more informed internet by teaching tech law and policy to everyone who wants to shape it.
0: Excellent. And we are going to dig more into that actually right now. So want to start with what is washing tech? You explained it a little bit there, but want to go into more details. What it is exactly and what you're teaching individuals in regards to tech policy as well as tech safety.
1: So the wonky term for what we do is civic engagement. So before the Internet and before we were able to set up platforms, most of the tech policy and telecommunications and media policy debates that were happening in washington were limited to washington and there was a little bit of engagement but you had to go physically to communities to meet with communities to educate them on what was happening with things like media ownership by women and people of color broadband build out to remote areas and issues like that now we're able to reach people on a much wider scale at the same time in washington The culture has been to exclude uh, marginalized voices from a lot of these debates. And for decades, people of color and women fought for, quote unquote, a seat at the table. And right now it's time to go beyond a seat at the table and it's time to make money like the lobbyists do. So what we try to provide is a platform where folks are going to have their voices heard have their research disseminated to a wider audience so they can drive more traffic to their own site, to their own work, help make a name for themselves, and at the same time influence public policy debate here in Washington. The second piece is empowering communities to engage locally on issues related to first thing that comes to mind is education policy. And so we want to teach folks issues around privacy and what schools are doing with their kids' data, for example, things they may not know about or different platforms that school districts partner with to deliver remote education tools to students. We want to provide information to the public so that they're aware of what's happening and so that they can advocate locally, whether it's through their school or through their PTAs, so they have a sense of what's going on. For example, if a school district, and here in Fairfax County, Fairfax County uses a platform called Schoology, but the only thing that governs the relationship between Fairfax County Public Schools and Schoology is terms of service agreement. But what we don't know is, what is the ongoing monitoring? Does Fairfax County Public School keep tabs to make sure that Schoology isn't selling our kids' data? What are they doing with our kids' data? These are things that parents need to aware of that are happening locally that can affect kids down the road. One example that I've talked about a lot is the example in Florida of a school district that was sending school discipline data to police department. And the police were wow. using it to predict future criminality. So we have a lot of these education and combined with surveillance issues that folks need to know about in their communities so they can advocate locally and then also support their representatives and engage more with their representatives in a more informed way. So that's that's our mission is twofold. We want to get best scholars and the best minds to a wider public. And then at the same time, we want the public to be empowered to advocate in their own communities.
0: Let's touch on that example, though. The school was providing discipline notes basically to police officers. What did they want the end result of that to be?
1: You know, it's hard to say. You know, we know throughout history that the end result was to lock people of color up. Um, Right. You know, and this is Florida, so you never know what's going on. But I don't know what the police were intending to do with it. I don't want to say it's a slippery slope between surveillance and the need to capture criminals, but it kind of is. But sometimes they go too far, you know, with these things. Mm -hmm. You know, they collect the data and then nobody knows what they're going to do with it. And so that's the kind of thing that parents need to advocate locally, that if the police are going to do things like that, they should push back against it so that the end result and that the policy that governs how police departments do that utilizes data informed by due process and, and getting input from the public before they just go ahead and start partnering with school districts without any oversight from the public at all.
0: And you gave that example, but want to ask if there's other examples that you have that are very common that you see across multiple states in regards to teaching folks around privacy.
1: We have the ring camera surveillance, again, another area where you have examples of it being effective and useful, but at the same time, we have to continue to ask at what cost. Right. Over the last couple of days, we saw that a, a ring camera caught a child molester grabbing a seven-year-old, touching her in, in an inappropriate way. The ring camera caught that. But at the same time, we just have sort of a general surveillance surveillance warrantless surveillance with these cameras. And so there's a constant struggle between how are these cameras going to be used by local police departments and how are they going to engage the public in the process of developing the policies that govern those relationships between police departments and, in this case, Amazon, when they're surveilling these communities. There's a big, big issue around these proprietary agreements between police departments and companies like Ring and Amazon and what they're doing with this information. And if it's proprietary, then no one can disclose what they're doing. That comes up against due process, and it's something that local communities should push back on. With the awareness that it can be effective, as we saw in the case I just just described with, with the uh, criminal who assaulted the little girl.
0: Technology is transforming faster than ever. Jumping on the action. Whether you're breaking into tech, looking for a new career, or just want to be seen, be all those things and more at be Future 2022. Join the Black Professionals in Tech Network on October 19th through the 21st in Toronto, Ontario, to network with over 20,000 Black tech professionals worldwide and hear over 100 incredible speakers. Come virtually and enjoy all of the tech talks or go VIP in person with an after-party concert by Rick Ross. Go to upcity.com and hit the Get Pass button so you can join the party. Now, let's get back to the episode. You want to talk about the other prong or the other half of the work that you're doing, and that's around tech policy work. And so first question I have is... For people who are not really familiar with tech policy, technically, what is technology policy?
1: So technology policy has to do with the relationship between technology companies and the public. And- what kind of oversight the government have on those companies and those relationships in a market based economy. So traditionally it goes all the way back to the early 20th century with the communications act of 1934, which governed electronic media and media ownership and first amendment. And so fast forward to today, we're dealing with the same kinds of issues around misinformation, disinformation, who controls the platforms that we were dealing with back then. Uh, the only issue was that these pla- the platforms are privately owned as opposed to broadcast where they were owned by the public, or the public broadcast spectrum. And so technology policy deals with how the federal government should deal with the interaction between these platforms and the public in light of the first amendment and in light of privacy issues, in light of speech issues, in light of, you know, who owns the platform, who's developing algorithms that decide so much of our daily lives, whether it comes to which algorithm recommends who we should date to how algorithms are tracking women who now are seeking abortions in a state where it's illegal. And so how should the government deal with those types of issues in an environment that's supposed to be defined by principles that are universal, but which were envisioned in an era where the founders never even thought of these technologies. And so technology policy and communications policy sort of combine now into this overall issue of technology policy that deals with media ownership which dealing with broadcast or you're dealing with private platform ownership and then First Amendment and whose voices are heard and what the politics are around how those policies are going to be influenced and developed and then implemented.
0: And there aren't a lot of people who mention that that that's their job or that's what they get involved in. So how did you get involved with doing tech policy?
1: Well, I fell into it really. Okay. I started out wanting to own my own radio station. That's all I wanted to do when I was much younger, is okay. I just wanted to have a, a radio station where I wanted to play music. But the the landscape has changed. That's why I decided to become a lawyer, because I wanted to advance through the ranks of owning my own station. Now I have my own platform, of course, but it's a lot different than I envisioned. I never had to apply for a broadcast license, thank goodness. And when I moved to... Washington it's a whole different industry so then it became a question of combining my experience working on the station's level in New York uh, and then uh, combining that with you know the legal training that I got in New York after seeing that it was going to be a lot different trying to advance through traditional media companies than than I thought for various reasons Dei is a is a is an issue that we can talk about. But technology changed and the policies changed. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned before about the way media policies focus on station ownership. You know, now it's focused on what platforms are doing and these platforms that are privately owned. And so just sort of flowed naturally following what the debates are here in Washington, starting with net neutrality and now moving up through algorithmic bias, misinformation, disinformation, Uh, These are all things, again, that have been going on for a long time. It's just a different context now.
0: Also, Joe, you mentioned that for you, you took the law route. So you have the, that's the policy side for you. But what interests you from the tech side? What made you want to make an impact there?
1: Money. (laughs) Okay. So, you know, I run a a nonprofit, but it's not Mm. Uh, non-revenue. And so... What what we need to do is we need to figure out who w- wants to support the work that we're doing. And right now, it's a question of informing the public around issues in a way that's important to them, not in a way that's driven by politicians in Washington. And that's how we keep the lights on, basically. And that's how Washington works. And now it's a it's a question of now I'm an entrepreneur and how to navigate that in a place like Washington where everything is governed by credibility of a person's voice, and the extent to which they are speaking truth and really trying to reach the public in a way that's meaningful and in a way that makes sense, but at the same time, bringing a lot of different stakeholders to the table who the public sees as trustworthy. And that's kind of the fine line that everyone is motivated by money, whether it's a nonprofit or a for-profit. And so the responsibility of nonprofits is is to sacrifice the profit motive, to sacrifice the tendency that private corporations have to just have a, a pure profit focus and not necessarily care about the social impact. You know, we're more of a social enterprise where we try to raise as much money as we can for our mission, but it's gotta be focused on creating real value for the public.
0: Okay, and Joe, you took an atypical route to get to tech policy. You weren't in tech beforehand and eventually went to law school. But if someone's listening to this episode, because tech policy is not a common role that individuals take, what would you recommend or what tips or advice do you have for them so that they can get into that particular focus
1: so, first of all, you don't have to be a lawyer. That's the first thing. That's probably okay. the worst thing to do because, <laughs> um, you know, the law school environment is terrible. There's something wrong with law schools. Um, so, you know, you can pursue a PhD and work on research. You can be, you know, a psychologist who works on issues related to you know, how the internet affects teens. They can become a subject matter expert on these issues. You can be an educator. You can get an, uh, an ED that, you know, in a way that focuses on the effect of technology on, on children. So there are a lot of different approaches to the field that don't involve becoming a lawyer. One of the things that, that folks in Silicon Valley like to say is that there aren't enough technologists working on policy and that the people working on policy in DC don't know what they're talking about. Well the same the same thing can be said of technology companies who don't have any civil rights lawyers or psychologists or teachers working there to develop the algorithms. I think there's going to be a lot of discussion around what exactly does it mean to be a technologist and how much should we really be emphasizing technical skills Are we giving too much weight to those technical skills? I think we are. And so then it becomes a question of bringing these other disciplines into the conversation. And so liberal arts graduates are gonna be super important to that. I would still recommend Some sort of technical expertise, if you're going to pursue a liberal arts degree or a liberal arts master's program or PhD, I do recommend having some kind of technical proficiency, whether it's, a, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is a boot camp where you can get certified for becoming a front end developer or things like that. I have friends who have done that. I have lawyer friends who have done that. I have friends who have gone into cybersecurity. And so there there should be a combination of technical and liberal arts more so than one or the other. I don't, I don't think it should be a minor. I think if, if you're in undergrad, then you should probably do a double major in a liberal arts and a technical field. That would okay. be my advice.
0: And let me use myself as an example. I've been in tech over 10 years. So I have some experience more so on the non-technical side, but I've still seen how it can affect black people. And I want to get involved in tech policy. I want to make a change. I want to impact. What could someone like myself do?
1: What was your undergrad in? Computer science?
0: My undergrad was in information system. So computers and business.
1: So computers and business.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So is public policy you, you would want to. So the first question is, do you want to work for your local government? So if you work in local government, You can become a technologist for your school district. You might want to look into the surveillance aspect of local law enforcement and bringing uh, some sort of social justice skills to bear on that if you're given the opportunity. If you want to work on on the state level, you can pursue opportunities in the state legislature by finding the the committees that deal with local technology-related public policy, primarily privacy. More so than speech, because a lot of states are enacting privacy laws now, and there's going to be a lot of issues around conflict of laws between the federal privacy policy that's currently moving through Congress and state policies in places like California and Colorado and Virginia and some other states. You know, if you want to work in business, I would suggest pursuing something along the lines of a cybersecurity certification. There's a CISSP Volunteering would be an interesting route. If you want to work in Washington, there's a particular way, tried and true method. You know, you work at an agency like the FCC or the FTC or the Mm -hmm. Department of Commerce, NTIA, and then you punch that hole on the ticket. Then you work on the Hill on one of the committees or you work for someone who were a member of the the, uh, Commerce Committee. Punch that ticket. And then if you want to work in public policy, then that's when you apply different companies to work as a public policy manager or depending on where you ranked in the administration or on the hill, senior, a senior advisor for public policy at one of the, at one of the companies. So is, would you want to move to DC or would you rather just deal working on business and having your own platform?
0: I think that's a very good question that I don't know if I have the answer to right now. I would say, picture current day, I would not be moving to D.C., so I would want to stay in the Chicago area, which is where I am now, but work on policy.
1: I think that's a great call. I would love to live in Chicago. I love Chicago.
0: Yes, Um, Chicago is a great, well, pre-pandemic, it was building up, then obviously COVID hit, but it's on the up and up again, which is always great to see.
1: And there's also a lot of venture capital activity going on in Chicago right now. And a lot of those VCs are looking to invest in folks who want to create platforms that address the historic lack of representation of diverse voices in traditional media. I mean, you have Twitter, which is on the progressive side where there's no shortage of diverse voices there, but who's making money off of it? Most creators who are prominent And it's hard to say how many are making money, but I saw somewhere that most of them make less than $1,000 from their content. Uh, And so how do we create opportunities? Again, going all the way back to media ownership, how do we create these kinds of opportunities uh, when we don't have inherited wealth?
0: Yes, yes, that is definitely true. Also want to touch back on that piece that you mentioned around cybersecurity, because that is a very big deal these days, because how many times have we seen a company have security issues? And a, there's been a lot of leaks and everything. And so I think cybersecurity is going to be a big tech topic that we cover for the next couple of years, because there's so much that goes on from a security perspective. And there's so many people who are needed from a cybersecurity perspective.
1: Absolutely. And the one caveat that I have is these technology companies for for people of color are just, from what I hear from my friends and colleagues, they seem to be just absolute brutal places to work. Uh, but the the remunerative uh, potential is there. You know, my good friend, Camille Stewart, who used to work at Google and was their head of cybersecurity or something. I forget her exact title. Now she's working uh in government. She's a prominent figure. And so, you know, that's someone whose model I think uh, one would want to emulate but like i said look at the requirements for obtaining a cissp or any of these cybersecurity certificates and pursue those it's going to be a lot of work but i'm sure you'll be satisfied uh, with the end result once you get that cybersecurity job cuz uh, everyone's looking for cybersecurity folks uh, yes. these
0: days yes definitely the one thing that you mentioned even just describing technology policy is misinformation and as we know Especially given the last couple of years, there's so much misinformation that floats around on the internet. And we see it on all the platforms from Facebook, Twitter, anything that you can think of. What have you seen from a technology policy standpoint that will help with the misinformation that's out there?
1: You know, that's a great question. What I've seen is that it's hard to govern in an environment where we have to constantly balance First Amendment. So the the best approach that I've seen so far is some efforts to inoculate the public against misinformation, help them evaluate what they see and hear. So taking into account, teaching them about fallacies, teaching them about where biases come from, teaching them the difference between misinformation and real information. So it's hard to address through policy, but the platforms themselves, in this case, YouTube is working with researchers at the University of Cambridge to develop technology and to develop a messaging approach that will help inoculate the public against misinformation by, and again, another wonky term is digital literacy, to help folks evaluate the information they see online more effectively. You know, there's a lot of conversation in D.C. regarding Section 230 of the, of the Communications Decency Act, which governs how platforms treat uh, third party content. We wouldn't have the internet that we have today if platforms like Facebook or Twitter or, you know, even Zoom to be liable for, you know, the content that you and I produce or that anyone produces. It would simply be too risky. But a lot of folks are are twisting it around and using it as a basis to push back against things like platforms that want to act responsibly and combat misinformation through reasonable content moderation policies. And so there's a lot of confusion out there in the political messaging You know, and it's sort of these red herrings trying to assert policies that have absolutely nothing to do with content moderation to try to gaslight the public around what's true and false.
0: Yes. And I think we can call out the perfect example is when Trump was in office, there was a lot of misinformation that was floating around or even before that election. So. There's a lot of work I think that needs to go into that, but I'm hoping in the future it gets a little better because for me, I was on the cusp of, well, I shouldn't say on the cusp. I've seen where you had to really do research when you spoke about something in the past versus now everything is at your fingertips. Everything is digital. You can have it immediately, but it could be wrong. And it's like the old saying of like, well, Google it. But now if you Google it, that misinformation is popping up. So I'm intrigued to see what direction all this goes in the next couple of years.
1: Yeah. Another challenge is that more and more platforms in this, because there's so much demand for content, are relying on algorithms to actually write the content. And Mm -hmm. if you don't have folks who are skilled to evaluate what those algorithms are spitting out, then platforms are going to be more inclined to just post whatever AI is determined is, is an appropriate piece of content in response to particular keywords. So that's another issue that warrants investigation.
0: Speaking on the AI piece, I know that some of your work has included AI and machine learning and how that's affecting people like myself and even your own family. So why don't we talk through that, actually, and what your experience has been and what are some examples that you've worked on that you can share?
1: Well, you know, there are a lot of issues around algorithmic bias. The first thing that comes to mind is credit reporting agencies using algorithms to determine whether uh, tenants, for example, will be given a lease based on factors that are biased, things that that have absolutely nothing to do with whether they're going to pay rent in the future, such as whether they have uh, a criminal record and things like that. There are issues around the way healthcare uses algorithms to determine if marginalized groups should receive treatment. But algorithms have been around for a long time. They have just haven't necessarily been on the internet. I mean, what is U.S. News & World Report's algorithm? Nobody knows, but it's been used for decades and decades. Recently, Columbia University was unranked by U.S. News and World Report because U.S. News and World Report claims that they don't have the ability to evaluate all the information that these universities are sending them. Well, how can they have a ranking if they can't peer review it? Right. So we've always had algorithms and algorithmic bias that affect outcomes for particular groups. And let me tell you, we have a lot of talk about repaying student loans and we have a, a lot of talk about reimbursing kids who attend for-profit colleges. Well, there are a lot of folks who can't attend elite universities because of these biased algorithms that are, that are in place. One example being US News Report. Another example, of course, being standardized testing that have held people back yeah. for years. And then the students who do go there get charged unless their families make below a certain amount. At least that's what they tell us that kids can go to school for free irrespective of their household income. But these schools have a long history of discriminating against people of color and, and pushing theories like measuring people's skulls and you know things like that. I mean, this was research that came out of these places, biased algorithms and pseudoscience that came out of these places. So we've been dealing with algorithms and biased algorithms and algorithms that have no basis in science since the beginning of time. It's just scaled up through the internet. Now it's, it's able to be done on a much larger scale than it was before.
0: You keep using the word algorithm, and I think it would be good for, especially someone listening to the podcast, a lot of times everyone's thinking of algorithm just using Instagram because that's the most popular version. For instance, with the Reels situation, if you're not creating Reels, then the algorithm is going to send your posts to the back of the line because they want you to use these Reels. But in the way that you're using algorithm, I believe is a little bit different. So let's just define algorithm for anyone listening to the podcast.
1: So that is an example of an algorithm. You know, that is a bias, Mm determining who gets to the top. You know, just like the ones I've already mentioned determine who gets a lease, who gets a a loan to own a home, who gets to go to Harvard, who, Mm -hmm. you know, which school is going to be at the top of U.S. News and World Report, which videos are going to be at the top of someone's Instagram feed. These really are all algorithms. And these algorithms are fed into artificial intelligence based on criteria that are defined by human beings. And so whenever you see ranking, the first synonym that should come to mind is bias. Because whenever you have a ranking, there's gonna be some kind of a, a bias, whether you're looking at restaurant rankings, where, mm-hmm. where they say that Michelin ratings determine what's a great restaurant. Right. Okay, why? Who decided that? A tire company? Okay. <laughs> so anytime you hear rankings, there should be some consideration regarding algorithmic bias and, and and the extent to which it plays a role.
0: Joe, in our conversation today, talked about your broadcasting background, but for the listeners who might not know, you too are a fellow podcaster. So tell my listeners about that and what you cover on the podcast.
1: Right. So Tech Policy Leaders is the main platform. And thank you for asking. Tech Policy Leaders is the podcast you can find at techpolicypodcast.org. And we feature, you know, those voices that traditionally very brilliant voices that uh, aren't as part of the debate in Washington as as they should be. And so since 2015, (laughs) we've been bringing in scholars and and lawyers and folks from across the spectrum, entrepreneurs to talk about issues related to how technology policy affects their work and how their work is intended to affect privacy policy and, and misinformation policy. So I encourage you to listen to it. We've had experts on there, MacArthur, who's now a MacArthur Fellow. We've had uh, Danielle Citrone, who became a MacArthur Fellow. Alondra Nelson, who headed up uh, OSTP, which is a technology wing of the White House. We've had Renee DiResta on the show, who predicted the misinformation and disinformation, what she termed blitzkrieg uh, at the time situation that we have now. So it's worth listening. And again, something you can find at Tech
0: Great. What's a reoccurring theme that you've seen threaded through all of the podcasts that you've recorded thus far?
1: The main theme, misinformation and online safety. You know, those are the things that keep coming up.
0: And, you know, we've talked about it a little bit, but I do you want to make sure I give my listeners some tangible tips around that? So let's start with misinformation online. And we've talked about it in regards to knowing how to make sure that you're reading the right resources and that they're reputable and everything else, but is there anything that we missed from a tips or advice standpoint for misinformation?
1: First of all, the prominent news sites like the New York Times and the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, you know, these yeah. are all credible sources of news. Uh, so, that I, so I would recommend to anybody that they continue to rely on those. Continue to build up your capacity locally to have local media outlets so that you're not just getting the national perspective. You're you're also getting a perspective of how these issues affect you locally, and what's going on in your local legislatures and your and your local administrative agencies. You know, these are a lot of things we don't hear about. We only hear about them if they're picked up in the regional sections of the national newspapers. There are telltale signs of misinformation. Study what the logical fallacies are. And you know, apply those things are uh, apply those things to what you hear and see online. So, you know, this digital literacy thing is something that we all can do to evaluate what we see and hear and tell yep. tell the difference between hyperbole and, and fact, an opinion and fact. Something a lot of, something we should have learned in second grade, but somehow we forgot along the way.
0: Some that's us. so true. So true. And what about from the perspective of keeping your family or yourself safe while you're online? So that could be like content creation or any any way that you interact online. How can my listeners keep themselves safe?
1: So we have a checklist that helps parents protect their kids online. We also have a webinar that talks about what's happening in tech policy and the and the context for what we're dealing with when it comes to kids' online safety. And you can find the checklist at protectyourkids.online. And in there, you'll find out what you can do with your parental controls, uh, what you can do with your with your location settings to sort of get a start on protecting your kids online. Um, really, you know, that's kind of the first step in staying informed in a consistent way in to stay on top of, quote unquote, technology policy related issues so that you know for yourself, and you develop your own instincts about what's right for your family. And again, the starting point for that is our checklist. You can find that at protectyourkids.online.
0: Excellent. Thank you for that resource. And Joe, we've covered a lot today from tech policy, your podcast, and other helpful information. But I want to open the floor to you. Is there anything that you want to share with my listeners? Now is your chance to do that.
1: Sure. You know, this is a, a difficult time. I mean, during World War II, we were only worried about leaflets, uh, propaganda being uh, distributed from airplanes. Now, uh, rogue regimes and insurgents like the ones we saw uh, storm the Capitol still have the ability to disseminate misinformation, disinformation, hate speech and insurrectionist materials at light speed. And so I encourage everyone to do what they can to make sure that they're evaluating information in a, in a way that makes sense and that's able to flag BS on your own. In terms of where you can find me, you can find me on Twitter, on LinkedIn, or Instagram and my handle is Joe Miller JD. J O E M I L L E R J D. Once you download the the checklist, you'll automatically join our mailing list and I'll keep in touch with you there to ensure the latest research on these things so you can stay on top of it.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much for your time today, Joe. I'm sure the listeners will appreciate all the tips and advice. And anyone who's interested in tech policy, now you have some people that will start participating in that. So thank you for sharing your expertise as well as your career.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much, Dina. And, and take care, everybody. Take care. Stay, stay safe and stay informed.
0: Thank you for listening to Black Tech Unplugged. I'm Dina McKay, and you can find the show on all social media platforms under Black Tech Unplugged. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this episode. And if you have a few extra minutes, make sure to leave a five-star review too. It will help me out a lot and help other people find the podcast. Until next time.